Good morning. It's really good to be uh, sharing with you. As Thomas has mentioned, we are in uh, the, the third block of our Church Alive series. We're closing that out uh, today as then we then move into our Christmas uh, series. If you've been with us for sort of any length of time over the last year, you'll know that we have been in this series. We've been dropping in and out of it. Um, it's, it's quite a long series, so we, we kind of chopped it up into five main uh, blocks. The first block was all about how the church was coming alive at home in Jerusalem, where the church was planted. The second block was all about how the church was coming alive to the neighboring towns and cities around Jerusalem. And then this third block that we've been in over the last sort of three or four weeks is about how the church was coming alive across cultures. And um, so we started think, three weeks ago, David Bruce was with us and he uh, was, was un- unpacking how the church was coming alive in Samaria. Then we looked at Cyprus, last week Turkey, and today we land in Jerusalem. Uh, we land in Acts 15. Uh, we won't be reading the whole of the passage. It's quite long. The account is uh, the account of the council meeting in Jerusalem. Um, I kind of always picture like, like the Belfast City Council when I see like the council at Jerusalem, when you like Jerusalem's edition of that. Um, but we're uh, unpacking Acts 15, starting at verse 1 through to verse 12. So if you have a, a Bible with you, uh, would you turn with me there? If you don't, the word should appear um, just behind me. Uh, so this is God's word. Certain people came down from Judea to Antioch and were teaching the believers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. This brought Paul and Barnabas into sharp dispute and debate with them. So Paul and Barnabas were appointed along with some other believers to go up to Jerusalem to see the apostles and elders about this question. The church sent them on their way and as they traveled through Phoenicia and Samaria, they told how the Gentiles had been converted. This made all the believers very glad. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders to whom they reported everything God had done through them. Then some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees stood up and said, the Gentiles must be circumcised and are required to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and the elders met to consider this question. After much discussion, Peter got up and addressed them. Brothers, you know that some time ago, God made a choice among you that the Gentiles might hear from my lips the message of the gospel and believe. God who knows the heart showed that he accepted them by giving the Holy Spirit to them just as he did to us. He did not discriminate between us and them, for he purified their hearts by faith. Now then, why do you try to test God by putting on the necks of Gentiles a yoke that neither we nor our ancestors have been able to bear? No, we believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved just as they are. The whole assembly became silent as they listened to Paul and Barnabas telling about the signs and wonders God had done among the Gentiles through them. And we thank God for his word as it still speaks today. So as I've mentioned, we've been looking at the church alive across cultures, how God's kingdom was breaking kind of beyond the confines of Jerusalem and the neighboring towns and cities. And as the text begins, we are in Antioch, right? And to set the scene, uh, certain people uh, made their way down from Jerusalem to Antioch and they were teaching the Gentile believers that they needed to be circumcised in order to be counted as true 
followers of Jesus. Yes, that's where we're going this morning. Circumcision is where we're landing. So, I mean, go with us. This is like the second of like five sermons that I've preached on the both on circumcision. So, I mean, I don't know if Dave's just like shafting me with the ones he doesn't want to do. But here we go. Go with me. But these certain people, right, they're a group of uh, Jewish believers who are convinced that this mark of circumcision is the one defining mark um, of God's family. This is what defines you. This is what means you're on the inside. And they're absolutely sure of this. And the reason that they're so sure of it is because it is a tradition. All the way through their history, God, as God's chosen people, they knew that the mark of circumcision was what set them apart from everyone else. These people would have kind of grown up steeped in Mosaic law, and that law would have stated that they needed to be circumcised on the eighth day. And it was a reminder to them of their covenant with Abraham. This was tradition, and not kind of like tradition that we know when we think of like tradition where it's like kind of warm and it's like sentimental and kind of feel good, but this was a holy covenantal tradition, something that was ordained by God at a time for them, his people. And traditions are, are really important things to us, especially as we get to this time of year when we, we get to Christmas. Yes, uh, Thomas has already dropped the Christmas word, so I feel like it gives me passage to like keep going there this morning. But we acknowledge in so many, uh, and practice so many traditions around Christmas, and, and they're kind of normal, right? You know, we, we, give, we give gifts and we receive gifts, we put up lights, uh, we go to parties, we have Christmas dinner, all of that sort of stuff. We put trees indoors, but no one really questions that one. I don't know where that, I mean tradition, I probably would just say that, but traditions are really important to us, and they're all kind of normal. But there are some, however, uh, places around the world that have very weird Christmas traditions. So go with me for a second. In Japan, for many people, right, I couldn't believe this, the traditional Christmas dinner is not turkey and ham, but KFC. <laughs> so apparently, I, I'll take you on a journey into uh, Japanese kitchens. So they don't have, apparently they don't really have ovens. They use grills most of the time. And people who do have ovens, they're like small, so they, don't, they can't fit like a traditional Christmas dinner. So according to a smart marketing campaign, by the Americans, they essentially have tricked them, the, the Japanese, that Colonel Sanders has like set the bar for like Christmas dinner. And they, you have to book a reservation to go to, to KFC on Christmas day. I mean, I couldn't think of anything worse, but I mean, I don't know if that's a reflection on the Japanese or it's a reflection on the Americans. But anyway, Japanese, uh, they, they have KFC on Christmas, on Christmas day. Another one, not too much uh, Christmas themed, but in Spain, in some parts in Spain, there's been a tradition around New Year's that on New Year's Eve you wear red pants. However, a small town just outside of Valina um, in sort of the southeast, they have taken this one step further and they host like a, like a run, like a, like a fun run on New Year's Eve that you wear only these pants. Coincidentally, it's the one place that has the highest pneumonia rate in the country. <laughs> Another, um, in the week running up to Christmas, Venezuelans attend a daily mass service. That might sound relatively normal. It's kind of like the way we do Holy Week, you know, in the, in the run-up to, to Christmas, how, or the, to Easter, sorry. But uh, in the capital, in Caracas, it has become tradition 
that they travelled to these services on roller skates. And so much so that they have like they've set up like a whole like structure around their uh, their roads and they close them until eight AM every morning on that run up to Christmas to provide safe passage for the Christmas worshippers. Like roller skates. Could you imagine like everybody scooting around Belfast and roller skates and like it's madness. I don't know who comes up with this stuff, but traditions are important to us. And we get so attached to traditions, so much so that they can kind of become a part of who we are. And when traditions break, we notice, right? Because when something breaks, when a tradition breaks, it generally breaks in us. We grieve it, we notice when it's not there, when there's no longer a KFC, or when there's KFC instead of like turkey and ham, we would definitely notice that. And something similar is happening in the passage that we just read. This is a moment when the tradition, the Jewish custom was breaking and this was a defining moment for the church. And not only was it a defining moment for the Jews at that time, this was a defining moment for what we know the church to be today because this would change the landscape of the church entirely. It would pave a way for what we know the church to be today. The passage pictures an interface of two worlds, the collision of the Jewish Mosaic law-abiding people and the Gentile lawless people. And these Jewish believers are drilling home that the Mosaic command of circumcision is essential and is the true mark of circumcision. And Paul and Barnabas, who are in Antioch at this time, they sharply dispute this. And it kind of sparks this debate, and so much so that the church in Antioch then send them with a group of other believers to the council in Jerusalem to have this discussion. But the reality is that it would go one of two ways, right? It would either be one of those moments that propels the church towards a whole new identity, or equally it could potentially kill what the Christian church was altogether. This was a defining moment. And in the meeting at the council in Jerusalem, we see Peter, Paul, and Barnabas, and James later in, in the passage that we didn't quite get to. We see them all contribute to the debate. We'll probably just focus mostly on Peter's contribution this morning. But between them all, they come to the same conclusion. They're all on the same page with this issue. In their discussion and in their debating with the council, they had one heart and one vision. And their heart was one thing, and that was life together. Life together, it was about unity, about acknowledging that through faith in Christ alone that both Jew and Gentile could stand on equal terms. As John Stott, Stott writes, that they would be heirs together, members together, and sharers together in God's one new community. This is about life together. And the thing about this emphasis about this unity is that the Jerusalem Council comes to the conclusion about Jews and Gentiles and the reason that they come to this conclusion is based on one thing. It's founded on one thing and that thing is grace. It's all about grace. And grace is a loaded word, right? Especially in the church. We use it all the time. We believe that we're defined by it. We are encouraged to show it, depend on it. Grace, 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 grace. It's a loaded word. 
And it's one of those words that kind of is used so often and in its familiarity, it kind of gets diluted a little bit. We kind of lose sense of it. But in order to understand what life together is to look like in the church alive, we must discover the beauty and the scandal and the wildness of grace again. I love how Gordon Fee defines Grace, he says, the sum total of God's activity towards his human creatures is found in the word grace. God has, has given himself to his people bountifully and mercifully in Christ. Nothing deserved, nothing can be achieved. And it's that, it's, it's that that we need to keep our focus on this morning as we think about the church alive, as we think about life together in the church Alive. And so Paul and Barnabas have made their way to Jerusalem and as they, go, they, they pass through uh, Phoenicia and Samaria and as they do they kind of tell all the believers and everyone that they meet about how the Gentiles were coming to faith. And when we read it, right, it kind of, when I was reading it and in the black and white of, of our Bibles, it kind of reads as though we, we, when we talk about like passing through Ocker and Clocker in Five Mile Town on the way to get to Oma, right? I mean, I don't know why, any, why anybody would go to Oma. Sorry, Michael Marshall. I know Oma was, Oma was a big deal. But it kind of reads like it's just these places that they pass through. But the reality is that Phoenicia and Samaria weren't close by. They weren't just little like towns that they nipped through in order to get to Jerusalem. Jerusalem was about 300 miles away. So we probably, you're probably talking about like a week's worth of travel, probably all on foot. It's kind of like us walking roughly from here to London and passing through like Liverpool and Birmingham. So it's not like this little like nice little jaunt up the road. And the reason that I say that this morning is because this really mattered. This really mattered to Paul and to Barnabas. This debate, this conversation, it really mattered. And traveling 300 miles was probably a bit of a no-brainer for them. And it mattered because Paul himself was living out of a story that was marked by grace. Grace alone through faith alone. Grace that had captured Paul's heart because it was the same grace that transformed his heart. Paul knew that his encounter with the Lord on the Damascus road changed his life. And he was so sure that it was the grace of God alone that got him to where he was today. And Paul made it his mission to tell as many people as he could about that grace, the grace that saved him and the grace that was available to all. And the word grace is used about 124 times in the New Testament. Paul uses the word 86 of those 124 times. So two-thirds of all of it just come from him and he became what was known as the apostle of grace because grace had inhabited his life. It really mattered and it's his personal transformation that drives Paul and Barnabas to bring themselves before the council in Jerusalem to have this theological conversation about salvation and to make their voices heard. And so the discussion begins. And it's actually the Pharisees that get the conversation going, these Jewish believers. In verse 5 it says this, And some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees stood up and said, the Gentiles must be circumcised and are required to keep the law of Moses. And this is really interesting because in the beginning, in the, in the first couple of verses when we were back in Antioch, the Jewish believers were saying that it was, it was circumcision that was needed for salvation. But now what was a single issue, council debate has now 
expanded because it's not just about circumcision. This is also about keeping the law too. And that's what's going on here. The Pharisees, these Jewish followers of Jesus are getting so caught up in their religion. They're getting caught up in their religious activity. And I think generally we have this view, at least if you're anything like me, I, kinda, I grew up in church and every time we think of the Pharisees, we, we view them as the bad guys, right? And of course there are things that they did that weren't good. I mean, they spent a lot of their time trying to like plot against Jesus and to kill him. And like, so they weren't, they weren't perfect, but I feel like we need to acknowledge the world that they lived in. They would have been steeped in this law. I mean, their focus was exactly that. This was all around them. It was kind of all the new. And even though they had accepted the grace that Jesus offered, they found themselves falling back into their religious ways, emphasizing the law and ensuring that they were always on the right side of it. They were caught up in their religion. Martin Luther, one of the church reformers um, throughout his life believed in this one insight when it came to faith and it was a fundamental insight into a lot of the stuff that he wrote about and the fundamental issue I think speaks exactly to this passage today and this is what the insight was the principle of religion is the default mode of the human heart the heart continues to work in that way even after conversion to Christ do we recognize and embrace the principle of the gospel, our hearts are constantly trying to return to the mode of self-salvation. By seeking other ways to save ourselves, we fall prey to pride, spiritual deadness, and strife. And that's exactly what is at hand here. These Jewish believers had lost sight of the grace that had saved them, and they were trying to return to that, that mode, that, that heart default mode of self-salvation. And that only ever led to one place, It led to religiosity, and probably more accurately, a religiosity that gave way to legalism. And if we're honest with ourselves, we probably find ourselves getting caught up in that same default mode that Martin Luther talks about. Whether it has to do with the ways that we engage with uh, our personal devotions, or it has to do with how we engage with biblical boundaries or how we, we, we practice our spiritual disciplines or whatever it is for you, but so often we find ourselves trying really, really hard to put ourselves on the right side of God to make sure that we're doing all of the right stuff. And the reason that I think we fall into that, we fall into that, like, that default mode so naturally is because that stuff is quantifiable, isn't it? So we can quantify and measure the fact that we've, we've done that or we've done this. And we kind of get into our minds that God's probably pleased with the fact that we've done that. And we maybe kind of shoulder this sense of righteousness that has maybe kind of been elevated and maybe gives us a bit of a lift. But the reality is that this stuff can't save us in and of itself. I love how Eugene Peterson talks about grace over works as he translates Ephesians 2 and verse 8 when he says, saving is all his idea, all his work. All we do is trust him enough to let him do it. It's God's gift from start to finish. We don't play a major role. If we did, we'd probably go around bragging that we'd done the whole thing. No, we, we neither make or nor save ourselves. God does both the making and the saving. Saving is all his idea. But when we start to take matters into our own hands, we lose sight of grace and we slip so easily into 
legalism. And I think legalism itself has two, two modes kind of in my own life as I've tried to navigate it. Um, and I think those two modes are fight and fold. So we either try and fight our way back into good standing with God by lots of doing and trying in the hope that God will accept our efforts. And very often, if we believe that our efforts are enough, all that does is just mine legalism deeper into our hearts and into our disposition. And all that really does is just create this vicious cycle of trying really hard, feeling like we've done enough, trying really hard again, probably not missing the mark and feeling like we need to try harder even more to get on the right side again. So we fight, or alternatively, we don't fight, and we fold. We just, we just fold. Walk, we walk away, we walk the other direction, feeling like what we, will ne- what we will do will never be enough, and we know it won't be enough, so what's the point? And we fold. But the reality is that both of these things only ever take place when we lose sight of what grace is. Yes, of course, there are good and healthy boundaries um, that we need as followers of Jesus to kind of stick to and, and help us point us back to him. But the point of those boundaries and those practices and disciplines aren't to get really good at them. They aren't to get really good at, you know, reading our Bibles or praying. It's, the point isn't to just be really good at those things. It's to bring us to him. It's a means to an end, and the end is Jesus. But the moment that our focus is on those things alone, then we've probably missed the point altogether. And the reason that I say that this morning, and the reason that the Pharisees in this passage had got themselves so tangled up in this issue was because their attention was ensuring that whoever was becoming members of the church had all the right credentials. And that just led to legalism. And the thing that I've probably found most challenging as I prepared for this particular uh, passage this morning. And so this group of Pharisees, they, what they were really kind of doing in, in the way that they were acting was just virtue signaling. In other words, by putting such an emphasis on circumcision and keeping the law, what they were really saying was that the grace of God wasn't really enough without really saying it. And that's what legalism does it tries to put you in control of a salvation that was never yours in the first place and that's what we need to be careful of that we don't find ourselves falling into that default mode of the human heart that we don't fall into self-salvation because when we do we aren't only wasting time and energy in this kind of feeble attempt to impress God what we're also doing at the same time is saying that his grace isn't really enough is that we're saying that his grace has got us this far, but it's okay, we can take it from here. Don't allow yourself to be tricked by the voice in your head that tells you to take control. It's through the grace of God and the acceptance of that grace in our lives that puts us in, in right standing with the Father, not trying really hard or trying to impress him. And you know, as I've, as I've lived as a Christian for the majority of my life, I've kind of... You know, as I've grappled with things like grace and trying to comprehend it, you know, I, I know that I never, ever will. But one of the things that I've learned about it is that there's an effortlessness with grace. 
There's an effortlessness with it because we don't have to try really hard to get it. It's freely given. And every time we fall into self-sufficiency or self-salvation or we repeatedly mess up or we're in a bit of a rut, grace just finds a way to effortlessly breathe life and forgiveness and hope over us again. There's an effortlessness with grace. And that's why it's so important. And so the discussion at the council continues and Peter begins to make his contribution. And when he does, he recounts a personal experience that he had some years earlier. This is what he says in verse 7. Brothers, you know that some time ago God made a choice among you that, that the Gentiles might hear from my lips the message of the gospel and believe. And it's, it's this, the story that, that, uh, that Peter is referring to here is an encounter and the subsequent leading to faith of a man called Cornelius back in Acts 10. And he is regarded as the first Gentile convert. And in that experience, Peter broke into all, he broke all of the cultural and Jewish laws because he not only visited Cornelius, who was a Gentile, but he stayed with him as well. It was against the law for a Jew to even associate with a Gentile, never mind dwell with one in their home. And yet in that story, Peter follows the leading of the Spirit to his house leads him to faith. And as he does so, he comes to realization. And this is what it is in Acts 10, 34 and 35. Peter says, I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but accepts men from every nation who fear him and do what is right. And it's that previous experience that enables him to come before this council in Jerusalem. Because salvation was no longer about being Jewish. It wasn't just about being Jewish and being able to kind of keep the law and about this physical mark of, of, of circumcision. It was about something much deeper. It was about the heart. It was about the heart. And Peter refers to this twice in verses 8 and 9. He says this, God who knows the heart shows that he accepted them by giving the Holy Spirit to them just as he did to us. He did not discriminate between us and them for he purified their hearts by faith. This isn't about externals. This isn't about the physical mark on your body or how well you can keep the law. This is about the heart. Because the only location for grace to work itself out in your life is your heart. And it's from that that everything else flows. You know, if, if what Martin Luther said was true, if his insight is true, and, and I believe that it is, that the default mode is, is kind of religion and, and self-salvation, then I'm not surprised that God's greatest desire is to transform our hearts, to move, to help us move away from trying to earn a place in his family and start living as people who've been transformed from the inside out by grace that is a gift and a gift that has been freely given to us. And you know, in the church, we talk a lot about grace, but we talk a lot about transformation too. You know, and, and I think it's, it's fair enough too. You know, we want to be people who are transformed in the way of Jesus. And we, we at Central, we want to see the city transformed. We want to be living as people who see the transformation of the city. We talk a lot about it. But the thing is, for something to be 
transformed, we have to acknowledge that it has already been formed by something else. You cannot transform something that is unformed. And therefore, if we want to see transformation happen, then we have to accept that we've already been formed or are, are, are being formed. You know, the very device in our pocket is forming us beyond belief. And the scary thing is that it is just a product of a world, the product of a world that formed it first. We are being formed all of the time. So we have to accept that our formation is happening all of the time in order to fully comprehend our need for transformation. And where does transformation take place? It takes place in the heart. I love how Dallas Willard frames it. He writes, the greatest need you and I have, the greatest need of collective humanity is the renovation of the heart. That spiritual place within us from which outlook, choices, and actions come has been formed by a world away from God. Now it must also be transformed. Indeed, the only hope of humanity lies in the fact that our spiritual dimension has been formed so it can be also transformed. Our hearts have already been formed, but they can also be transformed. And the question that it poses is, what is forming you? What is forming me? For these Jewish Christians, they were being formed by their history and their culture and the necessity for Mosaic law. But what is forming you? What do you need to be transformed from? Maybe it is things like your phone and social media and kind of the noise and the expectation that comes with that. Or maybe it's things like money or status or uh, your job, a bigger house, relationships, consumption. I mean, we've just, we've just been in Black Friday weekend when the world tells you that you need stuff just because it's on sale. We are being formed all the time. And I don't know what it is for you, but the truth is that these things can and will form us, but the reality is that they will never be enough. And for these Jewish Christians, it was their heritage that was forming their worldview and their soteriology. It was what was forming their doctrine of salvation. And Peter is saying, this will never be enough. They can't save you. But the only thing that will transform your heart is grace through faith. It's the power of the Holy Spirit at working in our lives, gifting us a grace that we don't deserve and a mercy that just gives it to us anyway. This is good news. And he's faithful to his promises. He promises us that he will forgive us, he will redeem us, he will go with us. He will allow us to come before him in all of our faults and flaws and be seen not on in an account of those flaws but on the account of his unending grace that loves us all the same. And that means that we don't have to become a striving people. We don't have to try really hard in order to stay on God's good side but we become an accepting people, a people who accept and become recipients of a grace so vast that we will never understand it. And the thing about grace is that it has two directions. It has the inward direction that grace, when, when grace moves towards us, it moves inward towards our hearts as we accept it. But it also has an outward direction that we must live out of as a response. 
The first direction must inform the second, i.e. God, the God who shows us grace. As he does that, we must then show that in return. And that's what the Pharisees got wrong in this passage. They had inwardly accepted the grace of God themselves, but they struggled to live out of it. They were more than happy to receive the gift that wiped their sin clean. But as soon as that meant that the Gentiles could also receive it and they no longer had to uphold the law and keep the rights of circumcision, they, they couldn't extend it. And Peter speaks right to the issue in verses 10 and 11. And he says this, Now then, why do you try to test God by putting on the necks of Gentiles a yoke that neither we nor our ancestors have been able to bear? No, we believe it is through grace, through the grace of our Lord Jesus, that we have been saved just as they are. And Peter is challenging them on the account of their past. These Jewish believers had a heritage and identity as, as God's chosen people. But we also have to acknowledge that they had a history of dethroning God. The, one of the overarching narratives of the Old Testament is that the Jewish people failed time and time again. They turned their backs on God. They were disobedient and patient, believing they could do it themselves, only for God to be gracious enough to save them the same amount that they failed. And so they just, as they just time and time again resorted back to that mode of self-salvation, and Peter challenges them that the heritage that they are holding on to it isn't enough. It's not enough. And he says, why do you put a burden on these people that you or your ancestors couldn't carry? You know, you, you, time and time again you failed. And yet, even though you know that you failed, you're still putting that same pressure on others. Why are you doing that? And Peter's telling them that because of what Jesus did, that the playing field for both Jews and Gentiles has been leveled because this isn't about good works or effort or law, but grace. And Peter challenges them to extend the grace that they had so freely given and they have nothing to say. The passage says they went silent. You know, we've talked about that this passage in, or this uh, series in Acts has a whole load of firsts. It has the first miracle, the first martyr, all this sort of stuff, but it also is the first mic drop moment, right? The place falls completely silent. And it begs a question of expectation, doesn't it? We all have expectations, expectations of ourselves, of others, of the lives that we lead, of the things that we hope to do and achieve. We all have expectations, and it's good to have expectation. However, depending what those expectations are, Sometimes they aren't that healthy. And the Jewish Christians had an expectation that for a Gentile to become a Christian, that they had to become like them. That they had to become culturally something else in order to find acceptance and their place in a culture that was never theirs to set. And all they did was burden the Gentiles with an expectation that they would never, ever live up to. And if you're anything like me, you'll think, well, of course, the Pharisees kicked up a fuss. Of course, they had an issue with this as they're being challenged. But so often, as I've said, you know, we deem them as the, the bad guys. But if we're completely honest, we do the exact same thing. 
How often do the Pharisaic tendencies within us come out as we view life together? How often do we burden others with an expectation that they should look like us, speak like us, vote like us, live like us? And once they do that, then yes, they're on side. How often do we do the exact same thing? Do we make it hard for those least like us to join the fellowship of believers because they aren't really our kind of people? And we shun them. We never extend the grace that that God gave us. And the issues that that creates is that we set the criteria. We, We set the criteria of what it means to be the church. And the issue with that is that then Jesus is no longer the head, we are. And that will only ever go one way. That won't point anybody to Jesus. It will maybe point people to our version of Jesus. But that's not enough. That will only ever lead to a, a, a division, a disunity, and it'll probably just sever the church altogether. And the heart of the council is not to sort out the Jewish and Gentile differences and then send them on their separate ways, but to cast aside the cultural and the personal expectations in order that we would be one new community under the lordship of Jesus Christ. What are the expectations you put on others? What are the expectations you put on yourself? to feel like you have to look a certain way and be a certain way to be a part of this community. You know, Dave talked last week towards the end of his sermon about how you know, we felt that mission was going to be at the heart of Central in the next five years. And if we were to be a people, a mission-filled people, with a hunger to see God break in, to our city, to see life poured onto those who need it, to see hope and dignity restored, then we're going to have to be a people who get close to that. We have to become, we have to become comfortable with the uncomfortable, to go after and to get close to those like, least like us, to make no distinction because Jesus made no distinction and grace does not discriminate. Life together is a life of grace. Grace that has been given to us because of what Jesus did. Not because of what we will ever do or whatever, whatever you know, holy things we can do or holy power we feel we muster up when we do all the right things and feel like we've done all the right things. It's about what Jesus has done and it's about that. It's that thing that we gather around today. It's that that gives us place. This is not about us. And you know, just as I, as I wrap up and bring the guys up, we've mentioned this morning that this is a defining moment for the church. And you know, if they had decided that law and physical circumcision was what was needed for a mission to God's kingdom, the church would have never fully come alive. It would have probably stayed within the walls of, of Judaism. It would probably would have stayed within Jerusalem and some of the neighboring towns and cities. But I say that because we, probably a group mostly of Gentiles, would never 
have heard of the good news, we would never have known of grace. And when the Jerusalem Council boils down its conversation to its core, it's about one thing, and it's about Jesus. It's all about him. It's because of his sacrifice for us, his great love for us, that loved us at our worst. And in spite of all our failures and our flaws, he still makes life together possible because his grace makes it possible. Life together with him is a life together with those least like us. And it's a life marked by grace. And that's what we get to carry into the lives that we lead. May we be a people who accept grace for what it is. In all of its vastness, its incomprehension, may we feel and freely receive the gift the grace is because it is freely given. And may we offer it freely to others. May we resist the mode of self-salvation. May we resist trying to take control and doing it our way and trying really hard. And may we be a people who don't put an expectation on others to look like us or be like us in order that they can take their place in a kingdom that isn't ours. May we be a people whose focus is Jesus. May we become more like him. It's grace that defines us. It's grace that transforms our hearts. Each and every day, as his mercies are new, it's grace. The church alive is a life together, a life marked by grace, defined by grace, not striving or religious activity or the expectation of others, but grace and grace for all. And it's because of him.